Well, Father, I thank You for the Word this morning in Jesus' name. Your Word is gracious. Your Word has hands. Your Word has a heart behind it. Your Word, Father, lifts us up. Your Word, Father, restores the broken areas of our life in Jesus' name. Your Word, Father, is light. And it illuminates those areas of darkness that try to take over our lives in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it's what changes us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, last week I preached a message called The Unparalleled Love of Our Good, Good Father. And today I want to continue along that line as we look at new expressions of God's heart and God's heart of love and the way he loves us. The name of the message is The Promised Eternal Inheritance. And what I want you to see through this message today is that as believers, you and I are the beneficiaries of Jesus' last will and testament. Something that most people never get around to writing, and then they go on to be with Jesus or wherever they go, and they never left things in order, but not Jesus. Jesus put things in order, right? Because he is the God of order. It was written 2,000 years ago at Calvary's cross, with Jesus' precious blood. As our Savior hung there, dying on the cross, he had already made provision for his last will and testament for the promised eternal inheritance of everlasting life for anybody that would call on his name. I want you to see today that God is a covenant keeper. You and I are covenant reapers. Do you remember a time as a child of picking a flower and then playing that little childhood game of, he loves me, (laughs) he loves me not. He loves me. Anybody ever play that game? He loves me not. And as you were playing that little game, you were just hoping, if you really liked the boy or you liked the girl, you were just praying and hoping with all of your heart that it didn't land on that last pedal of, he loves me not. Here's what I felt the Lord say to me. He says, you cannot have a healthy relationship with me apart from knowing for certain that the essence of his last will and testament are based on his faithfulness and his love for us. You see, the essence is love. It's not a part of his last will and testament. It's not a paragraph, and it's not just a portion. It is the essence of his last will and testament. The mentality of God loves me God loves me not, is systemic in the body of Christ. And what it does is it nurtures a very unstable guarantee with God and our Father's love. What it does is it creates a state of double-mindedness. And the Bible says in the book of James, a double-minded man is unstable in how many ways? (laughs) He's unstable in all of his ways. And the Bible says that he should not expect anything of the Lord when he prays because he's unstable. I don't want to be unstable. I don't want to fall down all the time, do you? I want that steadfast, rock-steady faith. And when I see my father's expressions of his love and his faithfulness and his goodness, then it just increases me in that area all the more. And sometimes we have to drip back and we have to begin to look at the good things that our daddy has done for us. There are people who get to the end of their earthly lives, and as they are taking their final coherent breath with gritted teeth, and clench this, they are just praying that that last breath does not fall on, God loves me not. I've been there, I've seen it. 
You say, that can't be right, Pastor Mark. It is right. What if, what if I have to stand before God on a day when he loves me not? Friends, I want to speak three words into your heart. That is impossible. That is impossible. You will never as a believer ever stand before God on a day where he loves you not. His love is always steadfast. His love does not change from one day to the next. His love is not circumstantial. His love is based upon what we call covenant love. And that's really what it talks about when it talks about the chesed, love of God, or the chesed, grace of God. It's literally talking about a covenant love. Oh, it's the richest love there is. It's covenanted. It means it doesn't change based on the fact that you didn't talk to me today or you slighted me in somehow today. It is a covenant love. It doesn't change based upon me. God's love is everlasting. The everlasting love of our God has been threaded throughout Scripture from cover to cover in the Bible. When the foundation of grace becomes the habitation of the believer, I'm going to tell you something, you'll find his love on every single page of the Bible. Let me just kind of reinforce that again. When God's grace and God's love become the habitation, it's where you dwell, it's what you think about, then what you'll see is you'll see the love of God literally on every single page of the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3, we see this everlasting love. Look what it says. It says, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Am I in the Bible? That's in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3. I told you it's an everlasting love. In Jeremiah 31 verse 3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I don't want to rush this. I want to make a couple of points right here. When he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, that is an eternal love. Everlasting, eternal, forever, all of those are synonyms of one another. He says, here's the kind of love I've got for you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He didn't say, I've loved you with a fading love. I don't love you with a a love that's up one moment and down the next, in one moment, out the next, off one moment, on the next. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He said, I don't love you with an ebbing and flowing love. You know, that's what I think about when I think about the tide of the ocean. It rolls in, and then it rolls out. This is not the way God loves us, that it just rolls in one moment, and then it rolls out the next. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What kind of love is an everlasting love? (laughs) It's the promised eternal inheritance love, the kind that Jesus put in his last will and testament that we'll go to in a little while. And then he says, I have drawn you. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The word kindness there in the Hebrew is the word chesed. It means grace. It means grace. He says, I have drawn you with unfailing grace. Chesed. This is what he drew you with. Sarah, this is what he drew you with, Jason, unfailing grace. And I thought about this when you're teaching your little children how to ride bikes. It's a good thing to have a little helmet on them, I suppose. It's a good thing to have the training wheels on them. They don't even realize it's the training wheels that's keeping them from going down. 
you know, you'll see that bike kind of ride for a little while, and all of a sudden it's on that right wheel, and then all of a sudden it's on that left wheel. They think they're doing everything, but really the training wheels are doing it. It's like goodness and mercy, following them all the days of their life. You know, and when they're about to fall down, goodness says, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> and then they drive a little bit further, and they're going to fall to the right, and mercy says, oh, no, you don't. In fact, that's what mercy means there in Psalm 23, where it says, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. That word mercy is the word chesed. We use a lot of English words, but behind that word is chesed. It means the grace of God. Now, we could let our kids go without training wheels. Seems to me like Back in the day, I don't remember having training wheels on my bike. And when my stepdaddy let go of me for the last time, I ended up into a big old tree. You know, I mean, you could go, oh, what's the big deal? It's just some cuts. It's just some bruises. It's just some band-aids. It's just some blood. Listen, Jesus shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to shed our blood, right? Does that make sense? He shed his blood so you wouldn't have to shed your blood. Goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life. This is a powerful scripture. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing chesed grace. God's grace is unfailing. God's grace is sufficient. We know that God's grace is amazing. We just sang about it today. We sang about his amazing grace. Call it grace, an amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amazing love now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down and covers me. Oh, it keeps covering me. It covers And, you know, four times we kept saying, it covers me, it covers me, it covers me, it covers me. Oh, man. One of the things I really did love about growing up in a Pentecostal church is when you get playing those old hymns like Washed in the Blood, I'm telling you, you better hope you got a strong wrist if you're the one who won the tambourine because those songs never stop. Because they get so caught up in these powerful truths of being washed in the blood, being saved by His grace and His love. God's grace is an unfailing grace. It's a sufficient grace. It's an amazing grace. And it's an abundant grace. I want you to see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. I just said it's an abundant grace. Did I say that? So does the word. It says this, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. What was abundant? Grace. God never does anything halfway. He goes all the way, and then he oversupplies. The Bible says in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. God is an abundant God. He has more than you can drink. He has more than you can eat. He has more than you can spend. He has more. He's an abundant God. I wrapped my heart around that truth as I was looking at it yesterday. I'm going, God, you're an abundant God. This is good news that I know a father that's abundant. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and the Apostle Paul said, of whom I am chief. There's not multiple chiefs in an Indian tribe. There's one chief. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners? I mean, I wouldn't even want to look at Paul's dirty laundry list, would you? I mean, this is the way he said, I was chief of the sinners. But then he says, he changes gears, and he says, how be it? For this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him, watch what he says, to life everlasting. It's an everlasting life. 
Life is not a life that comes and goes, ebbs and flows. It is an everlasting life. Do you notice in those three scriptures, he tied in grace. He tied in the love of God. He tied in the life of God. And he said, this is all in Christ Jesus. Good news. Jeremiah penned that God has loved us with an amazing love and has drawn us with unfailing kindness. It is the chesed. It is the grace of God. I want to show you something that the Holy Spirit led me to Friday night. I told you when we got out of school, I want to start exploring the Hebrew, and I want to understand the Greek. Here's the interesting thing about the Hebrew language. First of all, like in English, we have an alphabet, 26 letters. Hebrew is 22 letters. We have a complete number system. They have no separate number system. Their numbers are encoded right into their alphabet. So there's no such thing as separate numbers. When you have to write a number, you have to write a letter of their alphabet. That is encoded right in there. So as you're reading in context, you understand what they're saying. In their alphabet, they always have a word picture. Every single letter of their alphabet, they see a word. This is how deep and how powerful and multidimensional their language is. But in their alphabet, every time a letter comes up, encoded in there is also the definition. They all have word pictures, and they all have definitions. They all have number, numerical values assigned to them, and they all just have letters. So as I was looking at a Hebrew alphabet, only 22 letters, and I began to study the alphabet a little bit, I thought, I want to see what it says about this word chesed. It's the word grace. This is what I want you to see. Across the top there is the Hebrew spelling of chesed. It means the grace of God. Hebrew always reads from right to left. So starting on that first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is this letter. It's the word, it's pronounced hit. Hit. It looks like a lowercase n, but when that word is used, it literally means life. So if you were talking to somebody that spoke Hebrew and you used that letter, he would know exactly what you're talking about in the context you were talking about, he would know you were talking about life. Chet. Looks like Chet. Looks like the man's name Chet. But it's Chet. The next letter of that chesed word is Samek. Samek. Looks like a capital O. That word is translated as supported. And so as I was doing this word study, I'm like, oh God, that's really cool. Let's tie it together with the next letter, the final letter. Looks almost like a seven. Dalet. Dalet. That word translates as nothing of one's own. I'm in the word chesed. Now I want you to see this all together. There is your Hebrew word across the top. There are the three words reading from right to left. Chet, semek, dalet. It is the chesed of God, the grace of God. And that literally means life, chet, supported, samek, by nothing of one's own. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. You cannot find a more profound way to explain grace. And here it is hidden right in the very Hebrew word grace, chesed. God was already putting this in my heart before I even knew what Sarah was doing for music and stuff like that. We sing about these today. Let's take that first letter, the letter chet, chet. We sang it in one of the songs, call it grace. It's the breath that's breathing new life into what we thought was dead. Did we sing that this morning? We sure did. 
Chet means life. We sang about His grace. We sang the song today, Surround Me, O Lord. That letter in the Hebrew is literally support, but you cannot be supported until you understand that you are surrounded by God's love. You will not receive His support. You will not receive His grace until you understand that He has hedged you in. He has surrounded you and sealed you by the Holy Spirit. And so we sang about that. It was the very last song we sang today. It was Surround Me. Sarah, I want you to know something. You hear better from the Lord than you know. We sang in the song Cornerstone today. We sang, Dressed in His Righteousness Alone. Friends, Dalet means nothing of one's own. See, this is not my righteousness. This is God's righteousness. It's His righteousness. I am dressed in His righteousness alone. I bring nothing to the table that's worthy of my own. It's His righteousness alone. The unfailing, sufficient, abundant, and amazing grace are all expressions of our Father's love for us. They are found in Jesus' last will and testament in Hebrews chapter 9 in the benefit package called the promised eternal inheritance. Not only is God's love everlasting, but God's love is excellent. God's love is excellent. And here's what David cried out from Psalm 36, beginning at verse 5. He said, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. You know, Mac from Third Day took those words right there and turned it into a wonderful song. And he's still singing it on the radios today. He says, Lord, your, your, your love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. The word there, love. Any guesses as to what that word love is? It's chesed. It's the grace of God. He's saying, your grace, your grace, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the sky. And he says, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. It says your righteousness is like the highest mountains. You see, we don't have a hard time believing that God's righteousness is like the highest mountains. We don't have a hard time believing that. What we have a hard time believing is that our righteousness is as high as the highest mountain. That's the problem with it. But the last time I checked, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Whose righteousness do you have? He says it right there, that we might be made the righteousness of God. We're not some other righteousness. So that means that the righteousness that God has put on me, infused into my spirit, reaches to the highest heavens. It reaches to the depths. It reaches over in Haiti. It reaches to all the countries of the world. The righteousness that God has infused, it's His righteousness, but He's put it in our spirits. Wow, He's a good, good God. And then He says, How excellent, how excellent is Thy loving kindness, O God. The word excellent, you know, when we see that word right there, we have a tendency to think in terms of performance. Like we would say to somebody, Wow, you got excellent grades. We would say, man, he's an excellent athlete. We would say, she's an excellent singer. So we always tie this into like some sort of performance, but it's not what it means in the Hebrew. Do you know what that word means? It means costly, precious. So he's literally saying is, how precious, how costly. There was a cost. Jesus paid that price. He's saying, how costly is thy loving kindness? 
Any guesses on what loving kindness is? It's hesed. See, we already talked about the kindness of God, and it was translated in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, as hesed. He opens up by talking about the love of God in verse 5. That is the hesed, grace of God. And so the author, when he's penning this thing, he's like, wait a minute. We've got to find one word that brings love and kindness together. I got an idea. How about loving kindness? But it's still the grace of God. He's saying, how excellent, how costly, how precious is thy grace. And grace is not just a substance. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus is grace. So when we reread that scripture, it's literally saying, how costly is thy grace? Or how costly is thy Jesus, O God? Do you see the preciousness of that verse? That David didn't even know what he was saying. But he was prophesying in the future, how costly, how precious is this son of yours, O God? Then he says, therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. You know, you see that in the, in the Old Testament quite a bit, talking about shadows and talking about under the wings of God and stuff like that. You don't see that over in the New Testament, but you do see that in the Old Testament. In Psalm 91, it actually says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Watch this now. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Thy truth shall be thy shield and buckler. I want you to make note that he's saying it's under his wings he's going to cover you. You see, David, that's about as close as he could get. Do you know in the Old Testament they really didn't refer to God as Father? There's a couple of occasions where he was referred to as Father, but he was just always God. They didn't know him the way we know him. We know him as Father. We can call him God if we want. They didn't know him as Father. They knew him as a God under that old covenant. And so they said, listen, the best I can get is to get under the wings of my God, to get under the wings of this one that loves me. Friends, I've flown many times. If you give me the choice of getting in the plane or getting under the wing of the plane, I'd rather be in the plane. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, not under Christ, not beside Christ, not next to Christ, not above Christ, not below Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Wow. <laughs> it's so awesome. You and I don't live under the shadow of his wings anymore. We live in the light. Did you know it's impossible to have a shadow without light? It's impossible. If there's a shadow, there's light somewhere. I guarantee it. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about David. David, when he had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the reason there was a shadow there is because there had to be a light present as well. See, Jesus is that good shepherd where it opens up Psalm 23 saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it talks about him being with you. In fact, he says, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You can't have a shadow without light. Christ is that light. For David, God's beloved, the light was in the distance. The light was Christ. What was between God and David? 
that cast that shadow. Well, friends, I'll tell you what was cast in the shadow. What was cast in the shadow was the law that David was under. Those Ten Commandments, if you want to just get a word picture in your head, two big stones of Ten Commandments, when Jesus would ultimately come and die, those Ten Commandments would be removed from having to follow those Ten Commandments to be right with God, and it would no longer be a shadow, it would be a substance. And that substance is Jesus himself. There is no shadow for you and I, friends. We are children of light. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. Another way to say this is, since we are living in the light. Not just if, making it conditional. Since we are in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. God's love is not only everlasting and excellent, but God's love is extravagant. I don't know if you can find a story better in the New Testament other than Jesus himself dying on the cross, shedding his blood. The story that always comes to my heart when I'm looking at this extravagant love of God is found in Luke chapter 15. We call it the prodigal son. It's technically the lost son. The word prodigal, by the way, is not in the Bible, okay? It's just a heading over that particular chapter. The word prodigal is not there. But we see that love demonstrated best. The Bible says a certain man had two sons. And one of the sons, the younger son, it says, came to his father one day and he said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. You see what he's asking for? He's asking for his inheritance. But he's asking for it early in life. It was worthy of death. His father should have stoned him. His father could have and nobody would have faulted the father. He said, give me my share of the inheritance. So what it says is the father divided his inheritance between his two sons. It says not long after that, the younger son gathered together all he had and he went to a distant land. And there the Bible says he squandered his wealth in riotous living. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if they had nightclubs back then or what it was, but the guy is spending money like a crazy man. And money only lasts so long when you don't have fresh money coming in. If there's no checks to deposit, you'll eventually cut through what you've got, right? And there came a point in time where he had spent all he had had, and now he's looking through the help wanted at. He's saying, where am I going to get a job at? I'm starving. He said, it said he was starving. Where am I going to find work at? There was one man that was hiring. Just one man. Because if there would have been two, he would have taken the other job. But he allowed himself to be hired by a pig farmer. Now to understand how far he had fallen, Jews did not have anything to do with swine. They didn't touch them. They didn't eat them. They had nothing to do with pigs. And so the fact that right now he is feeding slop to a pig just shows you the depths that this young boy has fallen. He starts to covet the food that the pigs are eating, but the Bible says nobody would give him anything to eat. And then finally it says he came to his senses. And he said, my father has plenty of servants. My father has plenty of food. I could have a warm place to lay my head at night. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. And I will say to my father, father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Now watch his mentality. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Do you see that? He's saying, I'm no longer worthy. Why? Because sin got in the way. He doesn't even put his two weeks notice in. He just walks off the job and starts that long trip home. And on the way home, he is rehearsing that over and over again. I'm going to say to my father when I see him, Father, I've sinned against you and heaven and God. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Oh, but we see the faithfulness of the father. We see a forgiving father that's looking out. He's watching for his son daily. This guy's been gone for years. But every day the father's looking for his son. And the father sees him coming. And the father gets so happy and he runs to him, Brother Jeb. He runs to him. He doesn't ask him what's been going on in your life. He throws his arms around his son and the Bible says he kissed him. And I love that because it literally means in the Greek, he continually kissed him. The way I kiss my little grandchildren when I get them, one kiss is not enough. Man, I got to love on that neck for a little bit and get the other side of that neck and those cheeks and their hands and whatever gets in my way. Love. That's the way the father was doing this son. When it says he kissed him, it literally means he perpetually kept kissing him, kept kissing him. And finally, when, when he had to pry daddy off of him, he said, Father, I'm no longer worth And he, he just cut him off. He cut him off. He said, bring the ring. Bring him the ring. And of course, all these things symbolize things. The ring is authority. Remind him that he's got authority. Even though he's sinned, even though he's blown it, remind him that he's still got authority. Bring him the robe. But he didn't say just bring him the robe. He said, bring him the best robe. What is the best robe? Daddy's robe. He didn't say, go find his robe. It's hanging in his closet. He said, bring the best robe. And that servant that was right there knew exactly which robe he was talking about. He knew exactly where that robe would be hanging. He was probably the one that cleaned it for that man. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And he went and got him the best robe. The robe reminds us of righteousness. It reminds us that you are righteous with God. And so when he put that mantle on him, he said, son, I want you to take a look. Let's find something shiny so you can look in the mirror and so that you can see yourself. You're wearing your daddy's righteousness. And then he said, bring him the shoes. Bring sandals for my boy's feet. Put those sandals on my boy's feet. I, I imagine the boy's like, what? I've watched my boys do that over the years when I've been extravagant to them, when I've wanted to just bless them in different ways. They're, they go like this. What? <laughs> I can only imagine this son is doing the same thing. What? Am I awake? Did I fall and hit my head on something on the way home? What's going on here? This ain't right. And then he says, get the fatted calf and kill him as well. This story has never been about the squandering son, and we always think about it that way. You hear it preached so many times. It's about you squandering your wealth. It's about the squandering son. No, this story is about a forgiving father, friends, reminding his son that he has a promised eternal inheritance. Son, you may have wasted your monetary inheritance. That I'll agree with you. But daddy's been busy working since you've been gone, so there'll be another inheritance, son. You may have wasted your monetary inheritance, but your life, Let's go back to that has said word for a second. Your life is supported by nothing of your own. That is the grace of God. And that's exactly what the father showed his son that day. Let's be that way. Let's be that way everywhere we go. Let's show the grace of God, especially to people that don't deserve it, especially when they can't contribute towards it. Show them the grace of God. Let them know that the love I have for you is not supported. The life I have for you is not supported by anything that you've done for me, but it's supported because I want to express God's goodness and God's grace. Daddy was just really saying, it's all by grace, son. I'm the one that holds your promised eternal inheritance in my hand. We see the extravagant love of God demonstrated in Romans chapter 5 when simply the Bible says, and that Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Is that extravagant? When you look up this word extravagant, it usually has negative connotations to it. It does. The synonyms are things like wasteful, 
spendthrift. You ever heard of that one? But you know what? If you keep reading there, you know what you find? Over generous. That's my daddy. Oh, hallelujah. His love is steadfast, rich. And his love is always yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Millions of believers believe that God's love, his acceptance, his rewards, their ticket into heaven, and all the promises of God are based upon their performance or their ability to keep the covenant. I want to remind you again that God is the covenant keeper. We are the covenant reapers. When Jesus died on that cross, he was literally saying, Father, your covenant is going to be between you and me. This is really a dividing line. In the Old Testament, the covenant was between God and people. Under the new covenant, it's between God and his son Jesus, and we are in Jesus, and Jesus is faithful to the covenant. Isn't that good news? Many believers get caught in the time capsule of the childhood game of God loves me, God loves me not. Would you like to know the origin of that recipe, of that crazy ideology of God loves me, God loves me not? You want to know the origin of that? Let me give it to you. Everybody got a blender at home? I want you to put two cups of milk in that blender and then sweeten it with stevia. And let's put a little vanilla extract in there and maybe a little molasses just to make sure you get your iron. And then let's put a little bit of cocoa powder in there and three scoops of hemp protein and a banana. Does that sound good? Sounds good. That's the way I make my wife shake every single morning. Those are the ingredients for her shake. Sounds good, doesn't it? But let's add one cup of Old Covenant theology. Now let's add one cup of New Covenant theology. Hit the switch, mix it as long as you want, and friends, when you are done, you have got a recipe for disaster in front of you, and that's what is going on. We have not separated the Old Covenant from the New Covenant, and that's what it's doing. You know, listen, I just want to say this. I wish it was harmless. I really do, but it's not. I'm going to tell you what it robs believers of. It robs believers, first of all, of their promised eternal inheritance. You know what it robs believers of? It robs believers of their confidence to approach the throne of grace, to find mercy, to help me in my time of need. It robs me of my joy. It robs me of my healing. It robs me of my prosperity. It robs believers of their tenacity to stand in front of a mirror when they've blown it when they've really missed the mark, when they have went overboard, to be able to stand in front of the mirror and look the man in the mirror in the eyes and say, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. See, you don't feel like doing that when you've blown it. But when you understand His grace, which you are saved by, for by grace are you saved through faith, His grace, remember, is life supported by nothing of its own. So I don't support my life in Christ based upon what I'm doing or what I have not done or if I've done something wrong. My life does not ebb and flow based upon me. It's based upon what Jesus has done. Now let's look at the promised eternal inheritance that Jesus provided for us with his death on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 beginning at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. Once for all, by his blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Remember a few weeks ago I told you to be redeemed means to be bought out of slavery. So what God is saying is there's an eternal purchase here. I have bought you out of slavery and set you in eternity. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Did you notice the words, so that they are outwardly clean? I don't want to be just outwardly clean. Listen, a bar of lava soap and a Brillo pad can do that. I want to be inwardly clean, right? I want to be inwardly clean. What he's talking about is he's talking about when the first covenant was instituted in Exodus chapter 24, he's comparing how Moses set it all up, and now Jesus is coming. He's going to fulfill the law. He's going to be one sacrifice for all. You don't have to keep bringing bulls and goats, but they had to do that at one time. How much more then would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Friends, listen, if you're rolling over in your mind that I'm bad, I'm bad. No, you need that cleanse from your mind. You are not bad. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Oh, thank God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called, watch this, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that is where the inspiration for this message title came from, is when I was reading Hebrews chapter 9, and I saw that and I said, God, we've got a promised eternal inheritance. He said, yes, so why don't you preach about that? That's where the message came from. For this reason, Christ is a mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Or another way to say it, the sins committed under the old covenant. He says, when I died, I set you free from those sins that were committed under that first covenant. Now, I love this part because it says, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, and we could prove the fact that Jesus died. You know what? Historians will not argue the fact that Jesus died. They know he died. There's evidence that proves that Jesus died. In fact, he was seen by more than 500 people after his resurrection. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant or the old covenant was not put into effect without blood. So even in the old covenant, when God said, I want, to, I want you to set up this type and shadow of what is to come, he said, it's still going to require blood. These sins are still going to require blood. They couldn't forgive sin, but they covered sin. They cleansed your mind for the moment. They washed the outward man. And then it says in verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to the, all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Now, when I looked at that yesterday, I thought, wait a minute. By virtue of the fact that it mentions very specific details, blood, water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll, and all the people, then that means it is trying to tell us something very specific. I want you to see this imagery right now. Blood water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, sprinkled scroll, and sprinkled people. It's a picture of the redemption of man through Jesus on the cross. That's all you're seeing right there. And as God began to unfold that in my heart, I thought, God, that is just so cool. I mean, thousands of years before Jesus even came, here you were already giving us a type and shadow of what was to come. Let's deal with the blood and water, first of all. In John chapter 19, verse 34, the Bible says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
Now, when Jesus dies, he's going to institute the new covenant. It's not here yet. He's hanging on the cross. And I believe the fact that it made note of that detail in John chapter 19 was to be able to point us back to the original covenant and say, watch what I'm about to do. See, the original covenant was blood and water. That was only a type and shadow of my son. He'll be the last blood and water that you'll need. Do you see the imagery here? Scarlet wool. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So when he's talking about this scarlet and this wool, he's literally talking about the imagery of the cross again. He's talking though your sins be like scarlet. It's all pointing to the cross. It's all pointing to Jesus. And then branches of hyssop. I wish I had more time to teach on these things. Branches of hyssop. I want you to see this. Why would they tell us that? I mean, really? Branches of hyssop. Why would you tell us that, God? Because he wants you to see something very specific. Again, let's go back to John chapter 19, verse 29, the very next verse. And it says this. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. Jesus is being crucified. So they soaked the sponge in it put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to Jesus' lip. Again, all pointing to the cross. Why is it so important to think about a hyssop branch? Because the hyssop branch signified faith. It signified common faith. It's the way we get saved today. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that faith was being lifted up to Jesus, right to his lips, right to his nostrils, and he could smell the sweet savor of the people that would come to him one day. And then we see him talking about the sprinkled scroll and sprinkled people. The scroll, it's another way just to say the word. You know, when Jesus would open up the scroll, all the scroll contained was word. It was the word of God, word of God, word of God, right to left, right to left, scroll, scroll. It's the word of God. And it says he was sprinkled with this blood and Jesus was sprinkled and battered with blood. It was everywhere all over him. It's pointing to Christ again. And it says it would also sprinkle the people. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, we find these words. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So you can see that we got washed by water through the word. Who's the word? It's Christ. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We were washed by Christ. We were washed by the Word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without wrinkle, without stain or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We can see in the Word of God, we were washed by the Word. We were washed by Jesus. So we know we're washed by the water. And he said in the old tabernacle under the old covenant, he said you had to be sprinkled with blood and water. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle, of Jesus Christ chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, watch this now, and be sprinkled with His blood. Our hearts got sprinkled with His blood. And to be sprinkled with His blood, and then He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May Jesus be yours in the fullest measure. You've been sprinkled by His blood. You've been sprinkled by His water. It keeps pointing back to Jesus. Friends, the old covenant and the tabernacle there were just types and shadows of the true light that was coming into the world, and Jesus is that light. Now, as we're winding down here, I want to take you back into Hebrews chapter 9 at verse 20, beginning there. He said, 
This is the blood of the covenant which God hath commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness. And then jumping up to verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin. He's not coming back to show you your sins. (laughs) What a great truth. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Wow! Friends, let me show you the power of this covenant. This is Jesus' last will and testament found in Hebrews chapter 9. It's powerful. It's a powerful covenant. And let me just tell you one other thing about a covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul said, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. You can't add to Jesus' covenant. You can't subtract from it. You can't add any addendums to it. It's all been taken into consideration. The grace man finished it completely. He said, you cannot add to a covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, do you want to peek inside that last will and testament and see what's in there? When I was sitting there late last night, what's in that last will and testament? You see, I can go back to the Bible and I can see in there where it says, my sins and lawless deeds he'll remember no more. I can put that in his will. I can see in there where it says he'll never leave me or forsake me. I can put that in there. I can see that he's a a good, good father. I can put that in there. I mean, I can just start pulling out things. And because it's in the Word, I can put that in his last will and testament. But I felt the Lord say, how about if I just write you a short little letter? And here's what I felt the Lord say to me. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with my unfailing chesed grace and crowns you with glory. Son, you are the beneficiary of my love and my life support. This is by grace alone, sight unknown, and nothing of yourself. I am your Father, and this is my name, the Lord, your righteousness. My grace is an abundant grace. My grace is a sufficient grace. My grace is an ever-increasing grace. My grace is an unfailing grace, and my grace is an amazing grace. Son, my grace is inexhaustible. My grace is incomparable. My grace is inexpressible. My grace is indestructible. My grace is irresistible. My grace is inheritable, and my grace is irrevocable. Receive my grace, son. Receive my abounding grace. My love reaches to the heavens, my faithfulness to the skies, but my love also reached out to you, my son, and imparted all the riches of heaven and the righteousness of my only begotten son. His name is Jesus. I have parted unto you the promise, eternal inheritance of everlasting love. 
the promised eternal inheritance of everlasting life, the promised eternal inheritance of everlasting grace and hope and faith and peace. I am a covenant-keeping God. You're a covenant reaper. Receive my grace, son. Receive my love, son. Tell the whole world what you found in my last will and testament of Jesus. Tell them that I'm a covenant-keeping God. Tell them of my love. Tell them that I'm coming soon. Tell them that they have a rich inheritance in Christ. Friends, would you like to know how much God loves you? He loved you enough to write your name in his last will and testament and to tell you that you have the promised eternal inheritance of a covenant-keeping God. Father, I want to thank you in Jesus' name. Whoa, what a wonderful truth, Daddy. Oh, man, it's so awesome, Daddy. I want to thank you. Father, I sense the choruses of heaven right now singing in my spirit. In Jesus' name. Father, we are privileged people. Angels do not have what we have. I said angels do not have what we have. And so, Father, as righteousness has married itself with the integrity of your heart, I just declare we're powerful people in Jesus' name. And this gospel shall be preached to all the world. We will stand and we will tell them about the hasad, the loving, the loving kindness, the grace of God, the tender mercies of God in Jesus' name. And, Father, we thank you that many people will be one to Jesus and baptized in this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.